This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. It's a unique thing that I'd like to do today. Uh, One of the traditions in my family, we read a lot of books out loud. And uh, I've been pondering, this week was full of quite a bit of spiritual drama in my life, and it possibly ranks as one of the most significant weeks I've ever gone through, and yet it would be hard to explain why uh, to you. My my spiritual anniversary was on Friday, Uh, I was traveling almost the whole day, but uh, February 2nd, I know you guys know it as Groundhog Day, it is not Groundhog Day to me. Uh, it is a very, very special day in, in my life, and that was my 29th uh, February 2nd, uh, 28 years, but I was counting 29 because both numbers, it's four sevens is really cool, but then also 29, if you know my love for the number 29, Job chapter 29, Psalm 29, it's manly. So this, this week was sort of crescendoed with that, but I had such an amazing test that God was walking me through to prove his faithfulness in my life at a whole nother level. I mean, I've been, I feel like I've been tested more times than I should be. You know, if I was just, if God was asking me, it's like, Eric, are you you ready to maybe move on from some of these tests? It's like, you know, I think it'd be good, God. Maybe I I am ready to just move on to more of a uh, placid, calm life, you know, for a season. God never seems to offer that as part of his model. I think, and I, I really do appreciate, I appreciate the tension that is built in, the spiritual tension where he's constantly saying, so you preach it, do you believe it? And that theme of what I would call a man of action, in other words, a man that doesn't just think right thoughts, but a man who actually implements them and puts them into effect and into practice, is the burden in my life at a whole nother level. Because if you'd asked me even six months ago, Eric, are you putting it all into practice? I'd say, to the degree I know to do it, yes. And I'd tell you what, over these past six months, I feel like God has just sort of pulled away some kind of veil of blindness in my life where I see all these spots in my life where I'm not implementing to the degree I know to implement that which I know to do. How could you live in good conscience for so long thinking you are doing it and then suddenly realize there's so much more that God is asking? And all I can say is just like being a father with a child, my children need to obey to the degree that I ask them. There are things that they're going to be commissioned to do in the future that they aren't being asked of their father to do yet. And as a result, they're not responsible for that yet. But as they mature, suddenly daddy's going to add a new layer of responsibility. Now they're responsible for something greater. Are they, should they feel guilty that they weren't ready for that back then? No, it's because their maturity is now demanding a good father to give them a greater test to evaluate them and to prove them at a greater level. And so this week was that for me. And I tell you what, the shining grace of God that came cascading forth into my understanding this week was profound. And that's not necessarily what I'm going to preach on, which was really hard for me to make that choice because I want to uh, speak out of that. And I'm sure it'll sort of 
ooze out anyways, just because I was so moved by it this week. But there was something else I was working on this week, and that was just the simple question, Eric, what is your burden for this church? And that's, that's a, it's been a hard question for me to wrestle with because I have one, but knowing how to always articulate it, I could give you all sorts of different statements that I've given over the years. I desire to have a church that brings back the majesty of Jesus Christ. I just want us to walk in the fullness of what God intends us to. I don't want any diminishment, any damper pedal on what we are about. I don't want the devil to have his fingers in it at all. I want us to be set free to live the life of Jesus. I want us to be the happiest church in the world. I see no reason when we walk in alignment with the truth of Jesus Christ, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit in agreement with his word, I don't care if we're in prison cells. We're singing. We're the happiest people on earth if we walk in obedience. So I could say it that way. Uh, Part of what I'm going to share today answers the question, though, from maybe a different angle. I desire to be... I could use the term men of action, but that makes all the women feel a little awkward. It's sort of like us being called the bride of Christ as men. But people of action, the church that acts, the church that does, and you've heard me say this many times. You know, I I bring it up, seems like, to the point where you guys have to get to the place where you're like, oh boy, there he goes again. At the same time, truth is different than just facts. If I said two plus two equals four, and then next week I got up and go, guys, two plus two equals four, that's a fact. And you could still, I'm sure, find interest in that fact. However, once you learn it, you're sort of ready to move on. The truth of the kingdom of God is different. Truth is different than a fact in the sense that it's always personal in its relationship to us. So you could hear the same gospel over and over. And ironically, you've heard it before. You know that. And yet you need to hear it again. It's like food. Food is more like truth. You don't just eat one meal and then move on. You keep needing to eat. And so even though what I keep bringing forth, this, this idea of do not just be a hearer, but a doer. Twos, you'll see it in the notes too. Some of you already peaked. You're like, you're like twos? Is he really going to get back on the twos issue? I can't help it because the twos in Scripture press the point forward, which says there's always two. There is, if you remember the praying and confessing church series I went through, there's two kinds of churches. There's a church that exists just to survive. And their whole goal is to survive the wicked world around them and to insulate themselves and to just make it out the other side, somehow get to heaven. And then there's the church that defies the system in which it lives and as a result thrives. Two churches. There's always two churches. I just want to be the church that is defying the current cultural norms, the status quo, the political correctness, and says, I want Jesus. This world needs Jesus. And even though it is politically incorrect to bring Jesus to them, I can't help it. There was, I was sitting in the, the Holiday Inn Express. I was speaking at a conference this weekend. So I was in uh, Chicago uh, at a, well, it was a little further out of Chicago, but uh, I can't remember the town. I feel terrible about that. But uh, I was in a Holiday Inn Express, and I was eating my my breakfast in the morning. You know, you get that, uh, you know, they had a nice cinnamon roll there, by the way. That was was pretty tasty. Uh, And so I was sitting there eating. They always have a TV on, which is just, you know, ridiculous, you know, when I'm trying to just focus. I want to pray or something, but I got the, and I, of course, I never hardly ever see the news. You guys remember my message on diversions? I have not been following the news, so I have all this stuff, State of the Union address, and I'm like, what, what did he say? I mean, I'm so fascinated with what's going on, but I've been, okay, I'm staying focused. So now I got this TV here, which gave me a little outlet to say, like, hey, I'm innocent. I'm just eating my food, and there's some news going on. So, uh, but there was a story of 
some doctor who had done some pretty bad things to some gymnasts, and you guys, I'm guessing some of you know the story, and there's his father that is hearing what has taken place to his three daughters. And I don't know much about the story. This is all I know, is that the father, when he saw that doctor come into the room, rushed Adam to tackle him. He was going after that doctor when he found out what that doctor had done to his three daughters. You know, and I don't know if he's been criminalized in the news. I don't know what's been happening. All that went through my head is, now that's a right response. (laughs) In other words, there's something right about what was going on, even though he was tackled in the process. And I, here's my application to us. I'm not encouraging you to go into a courtroom and go rushing towards uh, the defendants and try and tackle them and take them out. That's not at all what I'm suggesting, just in case this is recorded and splashed around on YouTube. (laughs) However, spiritually speaking, when we hear in our soul and we awaken to the fact of what is taking place to those that are under our watch in this generation, we see what the devil is getting away with. What do we do? Do we just stand there and hear the sentence? Oh, the devil's judged. Yeah, he's judged at the cross. Amen. Or do we charge? And do we say, he's not getting away with that? We actually have the authority in this generation to do something. The devil can even try and tackle us. He can't stop us. The church of Jesus Christ is a freight train, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When we finally awaken to the fact that we must be action men, women, we must put into movement the very things we know as opposed to just letting them nestle in our brain and, and feel good. In other words, we may be right in our thinking, but are we living right in our behavior? So to address that issue and to bring it from a different angle, I would like to bring up the tradition that the Ludi family has of reading books out loud. It is actually one of the most important things in my marriage with Leslie. All through our marriage, I used to always just read books. And then we discovered audiobooks, and then I could get something done while the book is going. Then it became a family tradition. And now I, 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 we have this tradition where you know, the kids will sit, and I will pace around, oftentimes with a computer or an iPad, depending on how I have the book. I usually have an e-book version. You know, it sounds terrible. It's not as romantic as the dusty old version, but uh, it's a lot easier, believe me. It holds your spot. No bookmarks needed. It's really, really nice. And, uh, but as far as the discussion, the dimension of how it draws our family together, we all heard the same thing, we can reflect on the same thing, and it becomes a language between us. Like, Leslie and I have constantly referred to it. It's like, that's why we call our marriage Barracks uh, 28. That's where Corey and Betsy were at Ravensbrook, and we just refer to that. I mean, sharing a pillow, sharing a breath. It's like, all those things have become pictures between us to articulate what we're going through. And as a result, it bonds us. And so, at the risk of having a very odd message today, I'm going to do something for you. I I brought up the message by C.T. Studd, which is called Chocolate Soldiers, which has to be uh, one of the most amazing essays ever written. However, the way that I'm built, and with my background in Christianity, with my background in C.T. Studd, and all the books I've read from the 1800s, I can read it and I love it. Most people read it, and it's not that easy to read, and they don't understand what he means. His terminology is very old British, and so they're like, what in the world is he talking about? I think it's hilarious. I mean, I just laugh out loud hearing C.T. Studd talk. I just think it's great. So what I did this week as a gift for all of you is I uh, have developed a manful adaptation 
of C.T. Studd's Chocolate Soldiers. I changed the name just so no one mixes it up with his original rendition. It's called No More Chocolate Soldiers. And so I'm going to read that to you today, our, our manful adaptation. Uh, it's uh, <clears throat> pretty potent. And just to introduce you to C.T. Studd is really fun. But uh, this one's called No More Chocolate Soldiers. My subtitle is Lending C.T. Studd the Pulpit at Ellerslie for a Day. If I had a dream, uh, it's, it's, it is one of those things that, yes, will not happen unless we do it this way, and that is to have C.T. Studd actually come into this church one day and give us a word from heaven. It's like if he said to me, Eric, what do you, what do you want me to preach? You just preach what C.T. Studd would preach. Just You come up. You tell our church what you know we need to hear because I even need to hear it. I want to hear what C.T. Studd would say to our church. Uh, we're just about to get that. And... Wow, uh, it's good stuff. So I'm sort of going to be in the audience today, too, just sort of listening in as C.T., Charles Thomas, which, by the way, Charles Sepiel, who's not here this morning, uh, reminded me this week that Charles means manly. So this guy's name means manly stud. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Boy, if I had that name. So defining chocolate, because at first, chocolate... I mean, I, I really like chocolate. Uh, so is this a good or a bad thing? He's going to reflect upon it as a very bad thing. Okay, but not in the way that you would think. I mean, I, I don't think we should feel bad that we like chocolate. I mean, my favorite dessert is a chocolate shake. My favorite, well, and chocolate chip cookies. Uh, if Sandy's listening and your chocolate chip cookies, Sandy, are excellent. I don't want to scare her off from making them, continuing to make them. They're really good. Uh, <clears throat> defining chocolate. So here's our first one that we know. A tasty food preparation made from the roasted and ground-up cacao seed, usually sweetened. I like it sweetened, by the way. If any of you have ever thinking of giving me uh, anything chocolate, that baker's chocolate. I tried it when I was young in the house. I snuck it out of the cabinet. Not so good. Okay, but the way C.T. Studd is going to utilize this word is as a disastrous building material. You build a house out of chocolate. How's it going to stand? You see, you turn up the heat in life, what's going to happen to that chocolate house? It's going to melt. So anything built of chocolate will melt when the heat is turned up. That's his point. To build a Christian out of chocolate is not the lumber that God has selected in heaven. And so as a result, when we start to build Christians out of something soft and sweet, we end up with Christians that melt in the time of heat. The twos. The one that does and the one that doesn't. All throughout Scripture, of course, in the big picture, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam fails. He's unable to save his bride. The last Adam does the work. So this parallel, this this contrast between twos all throughout Scripture is just prevalent. The one that does and the one that doesn't. So Jesus refers to the tares and the wheat. They grow up together. They look similar. One produces fruit. The other is an imitation. The goats and the sheep, they're similar. I mean, they really are. They both have the same noise. And they look similar, but they're different. One produces the wool, one doesn't. The sloth and the ant, not very similar, but one lays around all day and the other... Uh, goes to work. Poor Abby loves sloths. She wants to have a sloth birthday party. So sorry about that, Abby. Uh, you, could, you could have an ant birthday. <laughs> the fool and the wise in Proverbs. The five virgins without and the five virgins with. There's two. 
What was the difference? One had. One did what they were supposed to do. You could just sort of see it. Okay, I'm giving you this vessel. It is meant to be filled with oil. So go get the oil. Five did, five didn't. It was an action that defined the difference between them. Flesh and spirit, Adam and Jesus, Saul and David. Think about Goliath. Goliath comes, one didn't, one does. Saul had, I mean, the guy was like the giant of Israel. He was head and shoulders above everyone, yet he was fearful when Goliath strode into the camp. And David did. The difference between the first and second, first king, second king. The chocolate Christian and the heroic Christian. A brief introduction to today's speaker. Mr. C.T. Studd has been invited in to speak to all of us today. And so I would like to give you a brief introduction of the man. And this is brief because I tell you what, we could spend our whole time just talking about C.T. Studd and it would be a worthwhile message. So this guy was one of the wealthiest men in all of England. His dad earned a fortune over in India and then he came back to England to spend it. And he had an estate that we, you guys have seen like Pride and Prejudice and Mr. Darcy's estate. Pfft, nothing compared to C.T. Studd's. I mean, just massive wealth that this man grew up in. At the age of 16, he began to be noted as one of the greatest cricketers, cricket players in uh, all of England, and which would then mean in all of the world. And by the age of 19, he was the captain of uh, one of the leading cricket teams in all the world. And he went on to literally be one of what would have been considered in that day and age one of the greatest, greatest athletes on planet Earth. So you can think of a great athlete today, and that was the status he had. Not only did he have the wealth, and the position and the privilege, but he had the athleticism, he had the charm, he had the way with people. This guy was, he had power in his country. He was an influencer. And then, at the age of 19, he encounters Christ. And his dad had found Christ uh, two years before he died, and he had tried to lead uh, C.T. Studd to uh, the Lord, but C.T. Studd finally encountered Christ in a way that changed him. And the way that C.T. Studd responded to Christ is very different than many of us. Yeah, I have to at least add this in. He came to Christ, and then for six years, he sort of backslid. So it's almost after that, when he was 25, that everything really takes off. And the way that he lived his Christianity from that point forward is so deeply moving to me. The Cambridge Seven. So Hudson Taylor comes over and actually begins to recruit and saying, I need I need men. I need men that are willing to lay down their lives to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the country of China. And the Cambridge Seven, one of the most noted troop of missionaries to ever leave the shores of England, it was such a big deal because almost everyone amongst them were men that were actually extremely talented and gifted, great athletes, uh, great military men. They all laid down everything in their careers, said goodbye to it, and went to China to work under Hudson Taylor. And he was part of the Cambridge Seven. So, uh, in this process, at the age of 25, he, according to his dad's will, he was to inherit his portion. He had, he had two other brothers, which was a very generous amount of money. Let's just put it that way. C.T. Studd decided, before he even knew how much money he was going to give, that he was going to give it all away. And so he marked it out. He told D.L. Moody. Moody Bible Institute was built with a donation from C.T. Studd. He gave 5,000 pounds to George Mueller, which is a lot more than $5,000, and he gave uh, to the Salvation Army. I mean, just massive amounts of money. He gave it all away. He figures if he's going to do this thing right, 
then he's going to lean on the faithfulness of God and not the faithfulness of his own bank account. And so he retained 3,400 pounds, which is actually a lot of money, uh, because by the time he figured out how much he had, he realized there was a difference. So he set it aside because he was getting married, and he gave it to his wife as a wedding gift. So his wife, Priscilla, was given 3,400 pounds as a wedding gift, uh, and so she, she could do with it whatever she wanted, he said. And so she said, let's start out this marriage right. And they gave it away. This couple, everyone would have thought that they're the wealthiest couple in the world. Living in China, no one would have ever assumed that they needed support as missionaries. They were in interior China, had no money, and no one knew that they needed support, and they proved the faithfulness of God. Somehow, someway, God always supplied for them in the middle of China. Then uh, they came back to England, and he went and was a pastor in India uh, for, I don't know, what, about six to ten years. At the age of 50, I mean, you wouldn't think of most men being on their deathbed at the age of 50, but at the age of 50, this man's body had basically uh, contracted almost every conceivable disease on planet Earth. He's going from a grand athlete uh, in his uh, late teens to his, in his early 20s, he had wasted away and had hardly any strength left, uh, and he heard about interior uh, Africa. All this man cared about was that the gospel was brought to those that otherwise couldn't hear it. That was what moved him. And so he hears about interior Africa, that no, no one had ever delivered the gospel to them. David Livingston came back and said, this is the most pagan area of the entire world. And C.T. Studd, on his deathbed, raises his hand to heaven and says, God, send me. I mean, how preposterous is that? Isn't this the job for a young man? And C.T. Studd was like, God, I know that typically they would send young men, but send me. Don't pass me by. 50 years old, lying in his deathbed, and he makes a request of God. He has to pass a physical exam to be sent by a missionary society, and guess what? He can't pass that. And they reject him. No, no one's willing to finance his campaign. No one is willing to do this. No one will support this. This is a fool's errand. And C.T. Studd rises up and says, I have a mission society of one. His name is God Almighty, and he is sending me. And C.T. Studd went to a place on earth that... No one in their right mind should go. You see, if you are like us, the pale skin variety, I know not all of you are pale skinned, so some of you are like, excuse me, what's this? This is dark. Uh, the paler skin variety, to go into Central Africa was sure death because the diseases that you would be exposed to there would immediately kill. Most, most white men that went there for gold would die within a week because their bodies, their immune system was not set up to handle that. So are you going to actually tell me, CT, that as a dying man, you're going to go into one of the most dangerous places for someone who's from England? You actually going to do that? Yeah, God's sending me. You know what? Whereas everyone else dies off in a week, this man spent 20 years there. Why? He'd already contracted all the diseases. He was the perfect fit for it. And he didn't just change interior Africa. He changed worldwide missions. This man was unrelenting in his pursuit of Jesus Christ. He would never ask for money. God would supply it. This man was of a different realm. That's all I can say. And whenever I read his stories, I recognize that there is something still missing in my version of manliness, in my version of Christianity. And that's why I would say, what do I have as a vision for our church? More of this. More of C.T. Studd in this generation. More of C.T. Studd in me more of C.T. Studd in you. 
C.T. Studd isn't the perfect man, so we only want to imitate him as he imitates Christ. He's not the template of Scripture. Jesus is. Jesus is the model, but as we see in C.T. Studd, we see a response to Jesus that is deeply moving, and I want to see more of it. The impossible mission to Africa, and what I would call him as a real-life action hero. You know, listen to this terminology. A man of action. That is the term that, I mean, that could be the best message title for this, a man of action. I still chose No More Chocolate Soldiers because his essay, his famous essay is called Chocolate Soldiers. If I go too far away from the title, no one will understand what I'm talking about. James 1, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You know, it actually deceives us when we're merely hearers. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. There's something about doing in Scripture that has great weight in the Christian life. Most of us have grown up in a Christianity that emphasizes the knowing. Is your doctrine correct, dear brother? I'm not against doctrine, because if you have the wrong doctrine, you're not going to live the right way. Your actions are still going to be faulty. There's nothing wrong with having the right road map. But if you have the map and don't get in that journey and actually go somewhere with it, what's the good of a map? No More Chocolate Soldiers by C.T. Studd, manfully adapted for the modern reader for the Church at Ellerslie by Eric Ludy. Chapter 1, <clears throat> The Missing Stubble on the Chin of the Church. Heroism. It's the lost cord, the missing note, and the once manly deportment of the Church of Jesus Christ. Like a five o'clock shadow, heroism was intended by God to bristle like stubble from every true soldier's soul. The counterfeit soldier is easy to detect. He may have the military uniform on the outside, but on the inside he lacks the manly shadow of heroic whiskers on his soul's chin. He is known as the chocolate soldier. And which of us is not stirred to scorn and amusement at the very idea of a soldier made of chocolate? In a time of peace and ease, true soldiers are like captive lions, pacing back and forth and fretting in their cages. These genuine soldiers are built for fight. And it is war that gives these soldiers their liberty and sends them like boys bounding out of school to obtain their heart's desire or die in the attempt. Chocolate soldiers are an altogether different sort. They fear the fray and avoid it at all costs. They are artisans of excuses, conning themselves into feeling noble for their efforts to spare themselves any discomforts of manliness. Real battle is the heroic soldier's vital breath. Seasons of ease turn true soldiers into stooping asthmatics. They waste away if their vigor goes unspent. It is war that makes this heroic sort of soldier a whole man again and gives him the heart, strength, and verve of a hero. Chocolate soldiers plant signposts along their path, reminding themselves often of their mother's wisdom to avoid hardship, disease, danger, and death. And therefore, these candied dandies consider it prudence to never pass through the land of difficulty. But just as this chocolate sort of reasoning makes for poor imitation soldiers, it also makes for poor imitation Christians. Every true Christian is intended by God to be a soldier of Christ and a hero par excellence, braver than the bravest of all men. And every single Christian soldier is built as a hero, scorning the soft seductions of ease and that relentless bait towards self-indulgence that warns with its stringy, smarmy voice to be aware of such dastardly destinations as the province of hardship, the den of disease, the suburb of danger, and the valley of death. 
Ironically, these very locales make up the heroic soldier's shortlist of favorite playgrounds. So between each chapter, uh, I had Sandy put in a blank slide so I'd know it was at the end of a chapter, and I'm going to give a little scripture just to reinforce my global point. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. You're going to notice the difference between the heroic soldier and the chocolate soldier is very simple. The chocolate soldier hangs out in the church, knows the songs, knows the rhetoric, but doesn't do anything. And when the challenge actually comes and the opportunity to engage comes, he has an excuse every time. Now, for those of us that grew up in America, we grew up in chocolate Christianity. And as a result, it's difficult for us to sometimes see the distinction between the real thing and what many of us have grown up around and even have participated in. We will share the gospel when we feel like it. However, most of the time, we just have excuses for why it's not the best time to do it. We will serve the poor when it's conducive to our schedule. And as a result, we're not available to the king of kings to rush into the battle and to do the very thing that he would do in that very moment. We are chocolate, and we melt in the very time when the battle heat turns up. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Chapter 2, the woeful song of the chocolate soldier. Sorry, there has to be a chapter, you know, dedicated to the chocolate soldier. We'll give him a voice for a little bit in here and mock it the whole time. In the realm of Christendom, these chocolate soldiers can fairly be termed chocolate Christians. And this candied chocolate variety of Christian is, as Christ would term him, a goat amidst the sheep and a terror amidst the wheat. He is a strange other sort of character fighting within the church today for elbow room and say. To the kingdom of heaven, this religious milk toast is an oddity and freak show, playing an altogether different role than the biblical script assigned him. When the scriptures say stand, he sits. When it says fight, he lies down and goes to sleep. Watch closely and you will certainly recognize him. You will know him by the fact that he dissolves in water and quickly melts at the smell of fire. Some may refer to him as a sweetie, a bonbon, a lollipop. He lives his life on a glass dish or in a quaint designer cardboard box. And clad in his soft clothing, he has a little frilled white paper around him in order to preserve his dear, delicate, little delicate constitution. We shouldn't be surprised to see these chocolate soldiers in our midst, for they have always been there. Their self-coddling ways rise like pustules all throughout the pages of Scripture. They lurk in the shadows of nearly every sacred story, engaging in loud coughing fits and demonstrative spasms of selfishness. He said, I go, sir, and went not. This is a picture of chocolate at its finest. This chocolate man said he would go to the heathen, but he stuck fast to Christendom instead. When I... When I read through this, there's, there's two key writers that oftentimes I'll go to uh, when I start to recognize that I'm excusing myself. C.T. Studd is one of them. Richard Wormbrand is the other. They're very different in their personalities, but Richard Wormbrand, I can't say anything. When he starts talking, whether I listen to one of his sermons or I read one of his books, all it does is it strikes me dumb. And it's like, okay, my excuses stink. Richard Wormbrand, his advice was, you need to be preparing for suffering, church. What are you doing? He would go through supermarkets when he came to the United States and walk through and discipline his soul to walk through and say all the things he doesn't need, all the things he could live without by the grace of God. <laughs> uh, not the way most of us would do it. So how many of us have said, 
I go, sir, and did not go. They say, and do not. Again, a taste of genuine religious chocolate. The chocolate man will tell others to go, and yet not go themselves. In the heat that melts chocolate, heroism is refined. There was no chocolate in General Gordon when he leapt upon the parapet of a trench in the heat of the conflict with the Russians outside of Sevastopol. Braving the rain of enemy fire while repairing the gabions so that their men might remain safe. A gabion's like an earth entrenchment. Gordon did this after overhearing a corporal having hot words with a low-raking sapper, a private, regarding who was supposed to perform this perilous job, the corporal or the private. On hearing this, Gordon, though the highest-ranking officer, sprang from the trench to do the work himself. Never, shouted the general to the corporal as he returned to the trench, never tell another man to do that which you were afraid to do yourself. Oh, boy, how many of us as pastors need to hear that yelled at us? That's the message for the church today. If we're going to preach it, we live it. To the chocolate Christian, the very thought of war brings a violent shivering fit, and the call to battle always finds him paralyzed and lying in bed. I I really can't move, he claims with his chocolate-coated reasoning. I only wish I could, but though I can't move, I can sing, and here are some of my favorite lines. I'm not going to sing it for you guys. I'll I'll just give you the, the lyrics, okay? That would be extra awkward. I must be carried to the skies on a flowery bed of ease. Let others fight to win the prize and sail through bloody seas. God cares too much about me to ship me off to war. I must mind the babies playing on the floor. Wash and, wash and dress and feed them 40 times a week till they're all roly-poly puddings, so to speak. Chorus. Round and round the nursery, let us skip about. Sugar and spice and all that's nice, this is what we tout. That's the end of chapter 2. Quite a climactic finish, wasn't it? Matthew 7, Jesus speaking. Therefore, whoever does these sayings of mine, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Doesn't just hear, does. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Chapter 3, tracing the epic foot tracks of the legends of yesteryear. God never was a manufacturer of chocolate and never will be. God's men are always heroes. In scripture, you can trace their giant foot tracks down the sands of time. This is a pretty special thing. If any of you have read through Chocolate Soldier and I would ask you, what's your favorite part? I mean, this little stretch right here of the giant foot tracks, he's going to go through these great men of scripture and he's just going to bring out these qualities in them. They're like, yeah, that's right. That's the way it's always been. Noah. Noah walked with God. Not only did he preach righteousness, he lived it. He went through water and did not melt. He breasted the current of the popular opinion of his day, scorning alike the hatred and ridicule of the scoffers who mocked the thought of there being but one way of salvation. He warned the unbelieving and entering the ark himself did not open the door an inch when God had shut it. Now that is a real hero, untainted by the fear of man. Abraham. Abraham was a simple farmer who had a word from the invisible God marched with family and stock through the terrible desert to a distant land to live among a people whose language he could neither speak nor understand. There was no chocolate in that, but later he did even better. He marched hot foot against the combined armies of five kings, flushed with recent victory to rescue one man. How big was his army? Just 318 odd fellows, armed like a circus crowd, and without a trace of chocolate inside him, he won the day. As the old hymn says, he always wins 
who sides with God. What luck! The man was only a farmer. He had no war training. What was his open secret? He was a friend of God. Moses. Moses, the man of God, was a species of human chameleon. Scholar, general, lawgiver, leader, etc. He was brought up as the emperor's grandson with more than a good chance of coming to the throne. And he had only one thing between him and it. Truth. What a choice. What a temptation. The bargain was clear. A throne for a lie. Or on the other end, it was ignominy, banishment, or likely death for the truth. He played the man. Refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin and success for a season, accounting the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Again, I see him now an old man and alone marching stolidly back to Egypt after 40 years of exile to beard the lion in his den, to liberate Pharaoh's slaves right under the monarch's very nose and to lead them across that great and terrible wilderness. This whole venture was a wild cat affair, if ever there was one. And may I ask, when were God's schemes otherwise? Look at Jordan, Jericho, Gideon, Goliath, and scores of others. Those tame tabby cat schemes are for those of the chocolate brigade. God's schemes are anything but tame, and they are ill-fitted for those that don't delight in difficulty. God's ways are fraught with the wilds of obedience and the dangers of faith. And it is men like Moses who revel in, this de- in these, desperate adventure- these desperate ventures for Christ, expecting from God great things and running headlong into the impossible with breathless exhilaration. History cannot find a match to this feat of Moses. How was it done? He consulted not with flesh and blood. He obeyed not men but God. Once again I see the old graybeard, this time descending Mount Sinai with giant strides and rushing into the camp, his eyes blazing like burning coals. One man against two million dancing dervishes drunk with debauchery. Bravo! Well done, old man! First class! His cheek does not pale, but his mouth moves, and I think I catch his words. If God is for me, who can be against me? I will not be afraid of ten thousand of the people that have set themselves against me. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. And he didn't fear, but wins again. From whence comes this desperate courage? Listen to the testimony of the ages. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. The Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. My servant Moses, said his master, is faithful in all my house. With him I will speak mouth to mouth. Such is the explanation of Moses, the chameleon, the man, the friend of God, and consequently a first class hero. David. Aren't these good? See, I'm enjoying it. Whether or not you guys are liking this, this is like a thrill for me. I love this stuff. David. David, the man after God's own heart, a man of war and a mighty man of valor. When all Israel was on the run, David faced Goliath alone with God. He was but a stripling and well scolded by his brother as well for having come to see the battle in the first place. What a splendid fool Eliab must have been. Did he not understand what heroism demands? As though such a boy as David would go to see a battle and not be compelled to stay and fight? Ha! They are chocolate soldiers who merely go to see battles and coolly urge others to fight them. And David was not constructed out of this dainty chocolate design. No! David went to the battle, stayed to fight, and won. Wise beyond his years, he had no use for Saul's armor. It cramped his freedom of action. He tried it on and took it off quick sharp. And besides, it made such a ghastly rattle, even when he walked, so that he could not hear the still small voice of God and would have never heard him saying afterwards, This is the way to the brook, David, and there are the five smooth stones you will need. Your own homemade sling will do first class, and there, that's the shortest route to that loud-mouthed Goliath. 
King Saul and all the chocolates surrounding him all ran away. They were all dandies, but David ran upon Goliath, and one smooth stone was enough to silence that boasting behemoth. David's secret was that he had but one director, and he the infallible one. He directed the stone as he directed the youth. Too many directors spoil the sport, and two are too many by just one. In a time of peace and ease, true soldiers... Oh, there it is again. Boy, I, maybe uh, this is like the line we need to be emphasizing. The devil needs to be pelted with red hot, with red hot shot. When I was growing up, that was one of my terms was hot shot. What a hot shot. And so when I see that, it's always hard for me to read it correctly. It's red hot shot, which is ammunition. So, but it is fun to read it incorrectly too. The devil needs to be pelted with red hot shot. Fresh from the founder of the Holy Spirit, that evil one laughs at our cold or lukewarm shot. And as for that imitation stuff made of half iron and half clay, half divine and half human, it's no good in the battles of true heroes. It intimidates our ancient foe not in the least. Why, you might as well just pelt him with snowballs. From where did this raw youth derive his pluck and skill? Not from military camps, nor theological schools, nor religious retreats. To know the only true God in Jesus Christ is enough. Paul determined to know only Jesus Christ. And look at the grand result. While others were learning pretty theories, David had been alone with God in the wilds, practicing on, on bears and lions. The result? He knew God and did exploits. He knew God only. He trusted God only. He obeyed God only. That's the secret. God alone gives strength. Yet, hero as he was, alas, even David once played the role of chocolate soldier. He stayed at home when he should have gone to war. His army far off in danger, fighting the enemy, won. David at home, secure within the sight of God's house, and often going there, suffered one great defeat, the one great defeat of his life. Entailing such a bitter lifelong reaping as might well deter others from the folly of sowing similar wild oats. David's sin is a terrific sermon, like Lot's preaching in Sodom must have been. Its theme, don't be a chocolate soldier. In his simple, quick, and full confession, David proved himself a man again. After all, it takes a real man to make a true confession. Chocolate soldiers will excuse or cloak their sin. They tumble in the mud, flounder on, wipe their mouth to try to get the bad taste of their acted lie out of it, and then go on their way saying, I've done no wickedness. A self-murdering fool, killing their conscience to save their face, like Balaam beating the donkey who sought to save his master's life. Being a chocolate soldier, even for a short time, nearly did, did David in. Beware. Nathan. Nathan was another real Christian soldier. He went to his king and rebuked him to his face. Now there's no chocolate in that action. Just like Peter's dealing with Ananias, Nathan confronted the chocolate religionist. Unlike the chocolate leaders of today who refuse either to judge, rebuke, or put away evil because of the possible scandal that may follow, Nathan played the man. These softy and melty chocolate-coated chiefs of our day are veritable soapy sams. They say it is nothing, nothing at all, a mere misunderstanding, as though God's cause would suffer more through a bold declaration, a hearty defense of the truth, and of the use of the surgical knife of correction than by the careful hiding of sin and the subsequent placating of the sinners. Doesn't the sacred book say that he that does righteousness is righteous and he that does sin is of the devil? And ought not this wayward one be told so? He that is led captive a second time by the devil doesn't need plaster smoothed over his hair, but rather he requires the brace rebuke and summons to repentance of a righteous man to effect his salvation. We are badly in need of Nathans today. Men who fear God and not else. No, not even a scandal. Daniel. Daniel was another hero. 
Was he not the man greatly beloved of God who sent an angel to tell him so? I love to watch him as he walks with firm step and radiant face to the lion's den, stopping but once, like his master en route to Calvary, to comfort his weeping and agonized emperor. God shut the mouths of the lions against Daniel, but opened them wide against those who had opened their mouths against Daniel. A man is known by his works, and the works of Daniel were his three friends, who, rather than bow down to men or gold, braved the fiery furnace. Again, we see him going to the banquet hall and hear his earthly counselor whisper in his ear, Draw it mild, Daniel. Be statesmanlike. If you are tactful and wise, your previous position and power just might be restored back unto you. And Daniel's simple reply, Get thee behind me, Satan. There he stands before the king, braving torture or instant death. But it's the king who flinches, not Daniel, who tells the king to his face the whole hot truth of God, diminishing not a jot. John the Baptist. The Baptist was a man taught, made, and sent of God. Good old John. He doesn't love and admire... Who doesn't love and admire this man? Why, even Herod did. Sure, John had an obvious deficiency of warm, oily flattery and cloying sentimentality in his composition, but this was due to his complete lack of chocolate in his manly construction. He always told the bang-flat truth, and that with emphasis. As he loved, so he warned. He knew not how to fawn. He wooed with the sword, and men loved him the better for it. They always do. The leaders of religion sent to John to ask him the dearly loved question of every Pharisee. Uh, By what authority do you do these good things? They asked that of Christ himself and crucified him for the doing them. John's answer was plain and pungent. I will tell you what you ask and more. John was always so generous. I am nobody, but you and your masters are a generation of vipers. A good hot curry, that. John never served his curries with butter sauce but he was always very liberal with the chutney. A man of God, no sugar plum or chocolate soldier he, was he. Thus he also faced Herod after six months in an underground dungeon. And he, being brought straight in before the king, surrounded with all the might and majesty of camp and court, blinked at the unaccustomed sight of light, but by no means put blinkers on the truth. God's man blurted out his hot and thunderous rebuke, Thou shalt not have that woman to be thy wife. A whole sermon in one sentence, as easy to remember as it was impossible to forget. John had preached like that before, like good old Latimer. That's you, Latimer. He was not above repeating a good sermon to a king word for word when the king had not given sufficient heed to it. John received the unique distinction of being paid the compliment of having a first-class character by both God and the kingdom of darkness. Do you hear our Savior indulging in an outburst of exquisite sarcasm? What do you think of John? Is he a reed shaken by the wind? A man clothed in soft raiment? Do you think him a chocolate Christian? How delicious the chocolates were right in front of Jesus at the time. Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, scribes, lawyers, and other hypocrites. How the crowd must have enjoyed it. Is he a prophet? No, he is much more than a prophet. Of men born of women, there is none greater than John. And what did the devil's agent say when after John's death he heard of Jesus? This, I tell you, is John risen from the dead. What a character. Fancy Jesus being mistaken for anyone. He could have been mistaken only for John. Nobody envies him the well-deserved honor, great though it was, for John was a man, pure granite right through, and with not a grain of chocolate in him. Had John but heard Jesus say, you shall be my witnesses unto the uttermost parts of the earth, I very much doubt if Herod's dungeon or his soldiers could have detained him. He surely would have found some means of escape and run off to preach Christ's gospel, if not in the very heart of Africa, then in some more difficult place. 
Yet Christ said, referring to his subsequent gift of the Holy Spirit to every believer, he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Intimating that even greater powers than those of John are at the disposal of every Christian, and that what John was, each one of us can be. Good, straight, bold, unconquerable, and heroic. Paul. But here are other foot tracks, outrageous ones that can belong to only one man, that grandest of Christian paradoxes, the little giant, Paul. Once he thought and treated every Christian as a combination of knave and fool, then he became one himself. He was called fool because his acts were so far beyond the dictates of human reason and mad because of his irrepressible, fiery zeal for Christ and men. A first-class scholar, but one who knew how to use scholarship properly. For he put it on the shelf, declaring the wisdom of men to be but folly and determined to know nothing else save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The result? He made the world turn a somersault. His life was a perpetual gamble for God. Daily he faced death for Christ. Again and again he stood fearless before crowds that thirsted for his blood. He stood before kings and governors and turned not a hair. He didn't so much as flinch before Nero, that vice president of hell. His sufferings were appalling. Read them. He trod in his master's footsteps and so received the same splendid compliment that Jesus did. All forsook him. So as you can see, there were some chocolate Christians in those days too. Anyone who forsook Paul must have been made of chocolate. And doubtless the chocolates excuse themselves as they do today. Who can abide such a fanatical, fiery fool? They must have whispered amongst themselves as they picked up their knapsacks and fled from him in his hour of greatest need. With such an uncompromising character, nobody can possibly work with him or he with them. What a lie. Jesus worked with them, and they got on very well together. Paul was a tactless enthusiast who considered it his business to tell every man the unvarnished truth regardless of consequences. He won his degree hands down and without a touch of the spur. A first class one too, that of the headman's axe, next best to that of the cross. And so the tale goes on. Go where you will through the scriptures or history, you find that men who really knew God and didn't merely say they did were invariably paragons of pluck, daredevil desperados for Jesus, gamblers for God. Fools and madmen, shout the world, and the host of chocolates among them. And the angels nod and shout back their agreement. Yes, for Christ's sake, they sure are. Nobly they fought to win the prize, climbing the steep ascents of heaven. Through peril, toil, and pain, O God, let us grace be given to follow in their train. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Now, I don't know what happens inside of you as we read through this. You know, which is like, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's the way I live. Or if you begin to see that chocolate potential. You see, we have a tendency to measure against a lukewarm church. And compared to them, we're on fire. But then when this guy starts talking, we have a tendency because he sticks Scripture right in front of us and then measures us against it. And this isn't even Jesus. These are men that believed in Christ looked forward to the Messiah in the Old Testament and followed in his train in the new one. And yet their lives indict us. It shows that we have marginalized the fervor with which we should live. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Chapter 4, Sorrowful Meditations on the Pathetic Sort of Soldier. The chocolate Christians of today can at least boast of having ancient pedigrees. These sad and sorry dandies dangle like woeful tributes of weakness along the corridors of time. And it is for the sole purpose of knowing what sort of life we should not live that I bring to remembrance these pathetic captains of the chocolate brigade. Reuben, 
First, I give you the dish of chocolates a la Ruben, as brought forth in the baking oven in Judges 5, verse 16. Oh, such great searchings of heart this tasty dish had, and yet still somehow it remained seated among the sheepfolds, listening to the pipings of the much-loved organs and church choirs. Now, it's good to have great heart searchings. It's just better to make great heart resolve. However, if instead of obeying, we squat among the sheep, leaving our few hard-pressed brethren to tackle the wolves by themselves, verily, we are but chocolate Christians. Balaam. The deserted dish of chocolates a la Balaam begins as a first-class treat, even earning the grand and rather tasty title of prophet. But then this chocolatey character develops a squint, melts, and finally runs out of the frying pan into the fire. This is the life of Balaam. One day, he couldn't get his left eye to look at God. It would look everywhere but where it was supposed to, at the earth, at the money, and even at that tempting little maiden known as Miss Popularity. He ought to have done as God told him and plucked out that eye. But he said that it was too much to ask of any man, and besides, he wanted the best of both worlds. He had a hearty desire to die the death of the righteous, but he wasn't willing to pay the price of a righteous life. He hadn't the pluck to curse God's people, so he concocted plans to make others sin. And one day, while his dupes were putting his chestnuts into the fire, those dupes fell into the flames, and Balaam with them. I counsel thee to buy, I, buy of me Isav, that thou mayest once again have a single eye and be enabled to see the folly of flirting with the world. Demas. Chocolates a la Demas had a wonderful first bite too. But in the end, Demas left old fiery hard-hitting Paul for an easier path. He said he thought Paul should wink at or slobber over sin instead of rebuking it. Mark. Mark joined the chocolate brigade once. He left Paul and Barnabas in the lurch and went back to Jerusalem for a rescue, a religious retreat. Thank God he got sick of it after a spell, resigned his commission amongst the dandies and re-enlisted in God's army. The Wrecking Balls. Beware the old crusty prophets who have lost their fire and now fire off only grand words instead of grand deeds. These are the great chocolate manufacturers. They are the wrecking balls of Christendom. Somehow in their journey, these old dandies forsook their first love and exchanged a burning fellowship with the Savior for a more convenient trip to Tarshish. And many fine youngsters have been turned into chocolates by these old coots. The dismay is commonly expressed this way. That poor young lad, he did so well when he obeyed God only... But it was all over with him when he listened to the voice of that old prophet. After all, didn't the old prophet say he was a prophet? And didn't he say he'd gotten his message straight from God? What a damnable lie. The floor of Christendom and elsewhere is littered with wrecks made by selfish old prophets. God won't stand nonsense from any man. Every man has to choose between Christ and Barabbas, and every Christian between God and some old prophet. Better be a silly donkey in the estimation of an old prophet than listen to his soft talk and flattery and afterwards become a wreck. Did not the Father make clear on the mount, this is my beloved Son, hear him? Moses and Elijah were both present in that scene, and both were pretty stout voices and worthy of hearing. But the Father didn't say, hear them. No, he said, hear him. The voices of every old prophet should be checked at the door of the risen Son. It's the word of Christ that makes great Christians. It's the word of Christ that reigns supreme in the life that shines with real heroism. The Ten Spies. The ten spies were chocolates. They melted and ran over the, over the whole congregation of Israel, turning them into chocolate cream, softies, every one of them afraid to face the fire and water before them. God put them all into the saucepan again and boiled them for 40 years in the desert and left them there. He has no use for chocolates. It's no small thing he despises. But chocolates, for he said, your little ones shall inherit the promised land which you have forfeited through listening to men and despising me. Jonah even the great prophet Jonah spent a short season as a chocolate soldier. 
told to go to Africa. He went to Liverpool and took ship for America. Luckily, he met a storm and a whale, which after three days' instruction taught him how to pray and obey and set him once again on the right track. There's nothing that shows up chocolate so much as a bit of, bree of a breeze among God's people. Paul and Barnabas had one once. Judging from experience, I guess there were some chocolates about them who got into a fog right away because of it. Before that, they had vowed they would go to the heathen, but this breeze between P and B put them off. If they hadn't been made of chocolate, they would have said, this affair between Paul and Barnabas only makes it more necessary for me to keep close to God and to do what he told me to do more exactly and punctually. So I shall go a bit sooner to Africa. That's all. Difficulties, dangers, disease, death, or divisions don't deter any but chocolate soldiers from executing God's will. When someone says there's a lion in the way, the real Christian promptly replies, well, that's hardly enough incentive for me. I want a bear or two besides to make it worth my while to go. Chocolates are very fond of talking loud and long against some whom they call fanatics, as though there were any danger of Christians being fanatics nowadays. It would be grand news if we were actually in danger of such a thing, for it appears that good old-fashioned Jesus-loving fanatics are as rare as the dodo. And that's disturbing, because God's real people have always been called fanatics. Jesus was called mad, so was Paul, so was Whitfield, Wesley, Moody, and Spurgeon. No one has graduated far in God's school who has not been paid that compliment of being called a fanatic. We Christians of today are indeed a tepid crew. Had we but half the fire and enthusiasm of the suffragettes in the past, we would have the world evangelized and Christ back among us in no time. Had we the pluck and heroism of the flyers of the men who volunteered for the North or South Polar expeditions or for the Great War for any ordinary daredevil enterprise, we would have every soul on earth knowing the name and salvation of Jesus Christ in less than ten years. Alas! What stirs ordinary men's blood and turns them into heroes makes most Christians run like a flock of frightened sheep. The militants daily risk their lives in furtherance of their cause, and as a result, a placard that reads shame hangs about our necks as a church as we labor to justify our unimpassioned inactivity by claiming that braving such risks and fighting against such odds would be tempting God. However, no conquest is made in assured safety, and conquest for Christ certainly cannot be achieved that way either. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Chapter 5. Uh-oh, guys. It's decision time. I mean, you don't think I'm just reading a book. This is what it leads to. You cannot hear the words of our king and sit passively. You must respond. C.T. Studd is famous for that. This man led so many people to Christ. He was a decision man as I think Bo called him before we started, a fork in the road. You come to this guy, and you have to make a decision. You can't just keep living the way you've been living. You have to choose. Are you with Christ, or are you going to be the chocolate? We Christians too often substitute prayer for playing the game. Of course, prayer is good, but when used as a substitute for obedience, it is nothing but a blatant hypocrisy, a despicable Pharisaism. We need as many meetings for real action as for real prayer, perhaps more. Every Orthodox prayer meeting is opened by God saying to his people, uh, guys, go to work today, pray that laborers be sent into my vineyard. It is continued by the Christian's response, Lord, I will go wherever you send me, that your name may be glorified everywhere, that your kingdom may come speedily, that your will may be done on earth as in heaven. But if the meeting ends in nobody going anywhere, it would be better to have never held it at all. Like faith, prayer without works is dead. That is why many prayer meetings might well be styled much cry, yet little wool. Zerubbabel didn't only hold prayer meetings. He went out, cut down trees, and started to rebuild that which was broken down. 
Hence God said, from this day will I bless thee. Reports say that someone has rediscovered the secret of the old masters. Cannot we Christians rediscover and put into practice that grand action of heroism that our great master and his former pupils so powerfully demonstrated? Both the Savior and his pupils sought to save not themselves, but rather they loved not their lives to the death, and so kept on saving others by losing themselves for Christ's sake. We are frittering away time and money in a menagerie of conventions, conferences, and retreats. The whole while, the real need is to go straight and full steam into battle, with the signal for close action flying above our helmets. When the noble lyrics of instant obedience and fiery valor are missing from the battle hymn we sing, it's no wonder we find it so difficult nowadays, even impossible to once again sing that triumphant song of heroism. Whatsoever he says unto you, do it! These were the words of Christ's mother at the wedding feast of Cana. Isn't that interesting? That's, that's Mary talking to the disciples. Hey, whatever Jesus is going to say to you, do it. That's a pretty interesting piece of advice there. And though they were directed towards a different and particular audience in their original utterance, the Holy Spirit lifts them up from the pages of Scripture and brings them afresh to each of us today. Whatever he says unto you, do it. Do what? Not put sweetener and spice into the soft, holy vessels that rest secure inside the house, but to pour the water of life into those empty, vulgar stone ones sitting outside the house. Do you hear the call to all of us? Do you hear the commission to go outside the house and see the miracle unfold? For just as Cana's marriage feast would have ended in shame had the wine run short, so Christ's marriage feast begins when all the necessary vessels outside are filled and the quantity of converted wine sufficient with a blend from every tongue and kindred and tribe and nation. The supply is assured as soon as the water is poured out, as Christ directed, into the uttermost parts of the earth. The mischief today is the reluctance of the servants to do the outside work. They all want to serve indoors, wear smart clothes, listen to the conversation, and make a terrible lot of themselves in the butler's pantry. We must make a real start right now, at once. For years, like all those infamous chocolatiers of history past, we've declared we were just about to begin, and then never begin at all. We must divorce chocolate and disobedience and marry faith and heroism. Who shall begin the battle? asked the king. You, replied the prophet. And when the king and the young princes led the way, though the odds against them were terrific, they won with ridiculous ease. In similar manner, we might ask the same question today. Who shall begin the battle? And we will find the same answer, waiting with breathless readiness to usher forth into our understanding. It's you that must begin. It's you that must make the start. Those built of chocolate cannot and will not take that step forward. But God's summons today is to the young men and women of Great Britain, America, and all Christendom, all who call themselves by the name of Christ to rise up, step forward, and with daring and courage to go after the evangelization of the entire world. Must you stay home, young man? Can't you go, young woman, and tell them, surely we are in the last period, the Laodicean stage of the lukewarm church. Will you be to Christ a partner of his throne or one vomited up? Will you be a militant or a mouse? Will you be a heroic soldier or a chocolate soldier? Will you fear or will you fight? Shall your brethren go to war and shall you sit here? When he comes, shall he find faith on the earth? A thousand times you have admitted that Christ's love so amazing, so divine, demands your life, your soul, your all. Well then, prove it. 
Will you be a Scrooge and withhold that which genuine honor to a king and a savior demands? Will you give like Ananias and Sapphira, who pretending to give all gave only part? Possessing and enjoying the vineyard, will you like the husbandman refuse the agreed rent? Will you fear death or devil or men? And will you not fear shame? Some shall rise to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Shall we refuse to imitate those grand heroes of old, to walk in their same passion, to emulate their same vigor, and to show their same devotion? The greater fulfillment found in the story of David's mighty men is waiting to be enjoyed. Would you pass it by for a mere bowl of porridge? For in taking the picture of soldiering readiness found in Chronicles and Samuel and lending it the lens of Christ's greater kingdom fulfillment, we see something wondrous and worthy of pursuit. All these, men, all these being men of war came with a perfect heart to make Jesus king over all the world. They were all mighty men of valor, fit for war. He that was least among them was equal to a hundred and the greatest to a thousand. They were not of double heart. Their faces were like the faces of lions. They were swift as the rose upon the mountains to do their Lord's commands. You sought in time past for Jesus to be king over you. Well, the time is now. Do it. Shall we not rightly reply, Jesus, we belong to you and are on your side. God, do so to me and more also. If I do not give every last ounce of my energy in order to see the rescue of your people from the house of Satan and set up the throne of Jesus Christ the world over. Come then, let us restore the lost cord of Christianity, heroism, to the world and the crown of the world to Christ. Christ himself asks you, Will you be a real sop or a real soldier, a milk toast or a militant, a humbug or a humdinger, a chocolate fool or a forked lightning fanatic? To your knees, man, and to your Bible. Decide at once, don't hedge, time flies, so cease your insults to God. Quit consulting flesh and blood and stop your lame, lying, and cowardly excuses. Enlist! Hear your papers and oath of allegiance. Scratch out one side and sign the other in the presence of God and the recording angel and note God's endorsements underneath. Either way, one thing is sure. He will undoubtedly keep up his end of the agreement. So we have an oath of allegiance here that uh, C.T. Studd drew up for us. And so his commission to us is to scratch out one side and to sign the other. I love this guy. I mean, this is, this is my kind of message here. This is a dream. And yes, I've been convicted the whole time so far. Just in case you think I can go through this uh, without having a little melty feeling of chocolate in me, uh, you'd be wrong. This is, this is great. So here's what we need to decide. You have two sides to this. Henceforth, from here on out, on the left, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, I'll be a militant, a fanatic, a man of God, a gambler for Christ, a hero. On the other side, for me, chocolate is my name, tepidity my temperature, I'll be a milk toast, a lukewarm sop, a child of men, a self-excuser, a humbug. So you can choose which side you're going to go with. Here's what I dream of. I dream of a church that every single one in our midst catches the vision and scratches out the right. We scratch out the tear. We scratch out the goat. We scratch out being the virgin without the oil. We scratch out being the sloth, the sluggard, the fool. We, we scratch out being in Adam. And we say, no more. Yep, it'll cost me my life. It always has. 
Every sincere follower of Jesus Christ, he has to count the cost before he signs this paper. Very likely, it'll mean imprisonment. Very likely, it'll mean torture. Very likely, it will mean death. I'm just being blunt with you. Study history. We can get some copies of Fox's Book of Martyrs if it would help you guys. However, the story of the saints of God throughout the ages is we are not ashamed to follow in the direction of the one who suffered for us. We're willing to pick up a cross. We're willing to deny ourselves. We're Christians. That's the only definition of Christian that's ever been. There has never been a version of of Christian which is self-seeking and chocolatey. And as a result, it's high time for us that we get this clear in our understanding. I, I love what is put at the bottom. God's promises are sure in either case. On the left, I am with you always. On the right, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The seriousness and the straightforwardness of this message doesn't fit in American culture. Some of you felt that as I was reading. It's like, I don't think you're allowed to just say it that straight. Well, I was just reading what he said, of course. You know, that was just C.T. Studd. That's the way we all should understand it. I appreciate C.T. Studd. To me, in a sense, he's like a spiritual father. The pastor of this church looks at that guy as a spiritual father. That's what I believe. I believe that Christianity is serious business, though we are the happiest people on earth. I believe it demands our all. I don't know what that means for each one of us. I believe that we need to deliberately today take action. Not just agree mentally, but to put ourselves into a preparatory place to move. To ready ourselves for battle. To ready ourselves to share what we have inside of us. To ready ourselves to even be called of God elsewhere. I'm not saying from the body of Christ, but into this world to share this gospel. I think a healthy church always has that dimension. It does not mean we do not reach that near to us. Windsor needs Christ just as much as Timbuktu. However, there may not be any missionaries in certain places in Timbuktu. And as a result, God may choose one of us to go. I just simply want us to carry that burden. No more chocolate allowed. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to melt it away so that we can begin to function with that heroism that he designed us to walk in. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.